0: Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Dr. Peter Hansen. Dr. Hansen is an associate professor of political science and a specialist in American politics at Grinnell College. He is also the Grinnell College National Poll Director. He teaches courses on constitutional law and American political institutions. His book, Too Weak to Govern, Majority Power in the U.S. Senate, illustrates how the majority party's effort to control the Senate floor has contributed to a breakdown in the annual budget process. We could be talking about that with him today, but instead we're going to focus on some recent polling. Welcome, Dr. Hansen. Thank you for passing judgment with us.
1: Hi, thanks. It's great to be here.
0: So as I mentioned, I want to focus on some of the very recent polls, because I just think it's such an interesting snapshot as to where we are as a nation right now. And I want to focus on a couple of things. President Biden's approval ratings, uh, the Supreme Court, whether or not people view that as legitimate and or political the number of Americans who think democracy is under siege, and finally end with some questions about individual liberty. But before we get into the substance of all of these polls and what they tell us, can you tell the audience, can you help us understand why should we trust these polls? How can we be sure that we should have faith in them?
1: Well, I think that's a great question. And and there's Obviously, some inherent uncertainty in polling. Uh, we're taking a, a sample of the American people, and from that, we are extrapolating opinion. Um, there has been polling errors in recent years, uh, per, you know, particularly when trying to predict election outcomes. Um, so, our approach here is to be as careful as possible and to use the best practices possible. Uh, we've teamed up with Ann Seltzer, who's one of the nation's best pollsters. She has an A plus rating from Nate Silver. This is a national telephone survey with live interviewers who talk directly with respondents. We're not using um, computerized calls or asking people to uh, punch numbers into their handsets. Um, so uh, we've tried to uh, structure our poll so that it's as reliable as possible, keeping in mind that there will always be some uncertainty with polling.
0: Right. And you mentioned telephone polls. Are you able to reach people on mobile phones now or just landlines?
1: So we reach people on both mobile phones and landlines.
0: And does that make a huge difference for your polling?
1: Well, we want to reach uh, both populations because they're, you know, they're slightly different demographically. Uh, people who rely only on landlines are are older. Uh, we want to make sure we've got a broad cross-section of respondents. And so it is important to us that we um, use both methods.
0: And what's your response rate? like? Are a lot of people willing to say, oh yeah, I'd like to answer some questions, or is it you know, one in 20? I'm just wondering how willing people are now to say, I'd like to weigh in on these issues.
1: It's gotten really hard, Jessica. Uh, the last statistic I heard is that about one in every 300 calls we make is actually responded to.
0: That was substantially worse than I thought. And does that, you think, skew the results at all? Because that one in 300 feels more passionately or is more likely to be super educated on these issues? I mean, are you already kind of skewing things, not you, but is a pollster already skewing things just because of who's even going to respond at all?
1: Well, the question is, is the population uh, that answers the phone systematically different in some way than the American population? Now, We'll be able to answer that in some respects. We can compare the demographics of our sample against census data, so we know if we match up in terms of age, sex, education, race, and other characteristics. The one that really makes me worry is party identification. You know, there—that's not covered by the census. There's not a, a national party ID registry. Um, we always worry that there might be. Um, different response rates between Democrats and Republicans that we can't easily observe. Uh, I think that a lot of the accuracy problems polls had uh, in the last election came from the fact um, that Republican respondents, or or I should say Republicans, um, appeared to be less likely to answer the phone and pollsters just didn't pick up on that. So that's not an easy problem to solve, but uh, we try to be very aware of it. And to the extent we can, of course, we, we weight our poll to the proper population characteristics so we can um, correct for every way that we can observe in which our sample doesn't match the full population.
0: It, maybe this isn't an, an answerable question, but I'm wondering if you have some thoughts on why that is. Why, is, why are members of one political party more likely to respond than members of another?
1: I think there are a couple of potential reasons. I mean, there is some evidence that um, when uh, one party or another is feeling discouraged, for example, they may be less willing to talk about their views. So their they're candidate's down. It's a rough patch for the party. Um, that may account for some of that difference. But then there's also evidence that uh, Republicans in particular are less um, trusting of expertise um, our poll shows uh, lower levels of trust overall. Um, and so uh, there there just simply may be a factor where Republicans are less willing to talk to pollsters. Uh, this is something that's really under interactive investigation by uh, those who do polling to try and make sure we understand these reason, reasons and, and then try and adjust our methods as best as possible so that we're getting the best sample we can.
0: God, there's so many more things we could talk about in terms of methods. And I think it's it's really foundational when we talk about the issues of the outcomes of these polls. And I know that the listeners are probably waiting now saying, okay, just get to the numbers, Jessica. (laughs) So here we go, Dr. Hansen, let's get to the numbers. Let's start with what I think grabs the most headlines, which is um, Biden's approval ratings. So I just want to flag for the listeners that we're recording this um, episode in kind of last third of October. And so things could change by the time you listen to this. Um, Now, the headline is when it comes to President Biden's overall job approval rating, 37 percent approve, 50 percent disapprove. Could you bring us behind that headline and tell us what you think is going on here and what's contributing to these numbers?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, So just for some context, a 37 percent approval rating is very, very low by Um, historic standards. It suggests that Biden is in some political trouble. Um, That number seems to be driven by um, attitudes about the economy. His approval rating on the economy in particular is 36 percent. And we also show that 52 percent of Americans think that the economy is going to be worse off in 12 months than it is today. So there seems to be a lot of pessimism about where we're going. I I think it's obvious why there's um, worries about inflation. There's continuing problems with the labor market. Uh, The effects of COVID are are continuing to ripple through the economy. And this is really weighing uh, the president down.
0: So is this largely about the economy and people feeling that they're worried their purchasing power will be down, that their job might not be there, or their job will look like a slightly different job? Are we also thinking about issues like immigration, global standing, climate change? Or I guess what I'm trying to back into is a question about, is job approval rating primarily driven by the economy?
1: There's a lot of evidence that perceptions about the economy um, carry enormous weight in presidential approval ratings and in presidential election outcomes. Now, we measured three different facets of presidential approval on this poll. We asked about approval on COVID, the economy, and immigration. Uh, His approval rating on COVID was the best of the group. It was at 46%. It's higher than his overall rating. I didn't see a lot of evidence that his actions on COVID are driving his numbers down. Uh, his uh, rating on the economy was 36% and his rating on immigration was 27%. Now, that's a very low number. It's the lowest we we measured. The question would be how salient is immigration as an issue to independents, uh, Democrats, and Republicans? We know it's highly salient to Republicans, um, but the question would be, is that really what's on the minds of independents, for example, as they're making their evaluation? I tend to think the economy is the more likely suspect.
0: So what do these numbers indicate going into the midterms? I know it feels like an obvious question, but again, it's October 2021. How worried should Democrats be? How happy should Republicans be?
1: I think this approval rating will be an anchor around the neck of Democrats as they try to hold on to control of Congress in the 2022 midterms. We can go back to Bill Clinton's first midterm elections in 1994 when his presidency was struggling. He'd failed to uh, secure the adoption of health care, and that was a real shellacking for the Democrats. Uh, They lost control um, of Congress in the Republican Revolution, and and that dynamic then characterized the rest of Clinton's presidency. So I think at this moment, Democrats should be quite worried. there, There is time for the president to recover but this is a very bad signal for the party heading into 2022.
0: There's a generation of us for which the word shellacking will forever be associated with President Obama getting up there the day after his midterm elections and saying basically, wow, that really didn't go well. And I I think I can't hear that word without thinking about that moment. Um, I want to bring us back to electoral politics for a minute Mm -hmm. and dive a little bit deeper. We talked about, the overall numbers, we've talked about um, the midterms. Can you talk to us a little bit more about where independents are with respect to um, President Biden and maybe even some uh, likely opponents in the next presidential election?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. What really jumped out at us from this poll was the degree to which President Biden's uh, support among independents has collapsed His approval rating among independents right now is an anemic 28 percent. And when we asked our respondents um, in a hypothetical 2024 presidential matchup if they would support Joe Biden or Donald Trump, we had a dead tie. And what surprised us was that Biden is now losing independents. Now, in 2020, if you look at exit polling, he won independence handily. Uh, Joe Biden in, in 2020 won independence 54% to Trump's 41%. We found that number today at Biden winning 28% of independence and Trump winning 45%. So this is really a full collapse of his support among independents. And if it stays this way, he's going to find himself in real trouble as he starts to approach re-election in three years.
0: So, you said you were surprised. Now looking at the numbers, can you help us understand what accounts for this collapse?
1: Well, again, I'd go back to the economy. Uh, if you look yeah. at independents' views on the economy, over 50% of them, again, think that the economy is going to be worse in the next 12 months. Independents in general are not as politically engaged as Democrats and Republicans. That's it's one of the things that characterizes them. And, and so uh, views about the economy tend to... Be particularly important for them.
0: You know, I wonder if you were giving advice to members of Congress, members of the Senate, a president, a presidential candidate, and they were saying, What should I focus on? It seems to me if you want to be reelected, you should put 80, 90% of your energy into issues that affect the economy. And 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 maybe that's not great public policy, but it seems like that would be great politics. Am I reading this wrong?
1: No, I think you're exactly right. I mean, of of course, Bill Clinton's famous saying was, it's the economy, stupid. You know, that is um, where he believed he needed to focus his energy. But the economy is not fully under a president's control. I mean, if you look at the problems we're having right now, they're really difficult. You know, the way the supply chain, for example, has been snarled by COVID and um, the difficulty getting goods to stores and, and uh, concerns about the, the labor market um, and inflation. These are, are not problems that you snap your finger and fix. Um, now, I do think, the, you know, the president's taking various steps. I mean, the, the first legislation he passed put money in the pockets of Americans to help recover from COVID. He has a major infrastructure bill he wants to pass that will help to spur uh, jobs. Um, but it's it's been very hard for him uh, to move that ball forward. That infrastructure bill is currently stalled in Congress. I mean, some of those bigger factors are just, you know, somewhat outside of his control.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering if there's a more fundamental question here, which is voters are very understandably so focused on the economy because it really affects them. Deeply, I mean, there are issues which you and I could have a discussion about. We should understand that it affects us deeply. We should understand that climate change and immigration voting rights do. But the economy is something where almost every moment of every day, arguably, it it really hits us on a concrete and specific level. But there's so many things that are outside of a president's control. I mean, does this call out for better education when it comes to what contributes to a good economy and a bad economy. I mean, it, so many times it just feels like a, a trick of fate as to whether or not a president inherits a booming economy, a flagging economy, and that this can really determine the the future of our electoral politics.
1: Well, you, you've really hit the nail on the head here. Uh, that's a actually a very hard thing for the public to digest. Um Presidents are at the mercy of the economy and uh, in a practical sense have relatively little control over it. So this enormous factor that um, can impact the, their ability to win re is, is something that is very difficult for them to control. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And this, again, could be a few-hour episode, but I know that because I promised the listeners, and I really want to get to it as well, there's another branch of government that you have done polling on, and that is really a big topic of conversation for this podcast, and that is the judiciary, and specifically the Supreme Court. And you have some findings about the Supreme Court that I find to be maybe not inaccurate, but certainly has to make people like Chief Justice John Roberts very worried, which is that more than 60%, I believe, of the respondents think that the Supreme Court is really driven by politics, not by the law. Can you bring us, again, behind those numbers a little bit?
1: Well, I'd be happy to. And let me just provide a little bit of context about why we asked this. The question that from the time of our framing that has been asked about the Supreme Court is What gives the court the standing or the legitimacy to overturn the decisions of elected officials, right? Why should it exercise this power of judicial review? And the answer that everyone from Alexander Hamilton to Antonin Scalia have given is that the court's role is to objectively uphold the Constitution, right? And of course, there's debate over what that means precisely, but it should have that power because it is upholding these fundamental values that we have. And that's why um, its decisions uh, should trump those of elected officials, because because it is is upholding fundamental values. And if the court is not doing that, right, if if the members of the court are just politicians in black robes, um, then they shouldn't have that authority, right, that that authority should remain with elected officials. And so what we asked our respondents was, when thinking about the Supreme Court, do you think its decisions are based more on the Constitution and the law, or more on the political views of its members? And 62% of people said on the political views of members. Now, that was really a shocking finding. You know, the, the court historically has really benefited from strong public support. It's been viewed as a trusted institution. But I think that reputation has just been battered over the last decade as nominations have become hotly contested politically. Um, of course, during the Trump presidency, we that really came into sharp focus where he would go out and campaign on uh, the argument that conservatives should capture the court. Uh, we had the episode of Mitch McConnell refusing to bring President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, even up for a vote. So all of the elected branches have been sending this message to the public um, that the court's political, and I think the public has picked up on it. Um, Now, you said, can you take us behind those numbers? Well, there's actually not as much to discuss here. Uh, This is an across-the-board sentiment, right? Republicans, Democrats, and Independents all believe, over 60% in each case, that the decisions of the court are political. And this is really troubling from the standpoint of the legitimacy of the court, especially as you look at this term, and you know they're about to make decisions on abortion and affirmative action and gun rights, and they're facing a public um, that is no longer giving them the benefit of the doubt.
0: Are Republicans, Democrats, Independents pretty uniformly Disenchanted with the Supreme Court, or disenchanted, I'm using as a term to mean think it's really political as opposed to independent and objective?
1: Well, the two questions we ask on the court are you know, do our respondents think that its decisions are based in the Constitution and the law and political? And the answer there is clearly yes. And then the other thing we ask is, are our respondents interested in reforming the court? So in this case, we said, Currently, U.S. Supreme Court justices are appointed for life. Do you favor continuing the system or changing to a one-time 15-year term for each justice? And here again, overwhelmingly, our respondents said yes. Democrats, Republicans, independents, over 60% of them said they would like to end um, lifetime appointments. So the, the two clear signals we're getting from this poll are the perception that it's become political and the perception that it needs reform.
0: Do you have a sense of, because this reform, I, I think, is not coming. We've talked on this podcast about the um, commission on reforming the Supreme Court that President Biden put together. We've talked about their initial findings. We're going to be talking about their final recommendations or suggestions or non-recommendations. And and I will just say my very strong sense is nothing is coming of this for a variety of reasons. Um, And so, I don't think we will see real reform to the Supreme Court in the next 10 years at least. Do you have a sense then of where things are going? As you said, this is a really big Supreme Court term. There's one, and I now suspect two big abortion cases that the court will hear gun control, religious rights, money in politics, potentially affirmative action, lots of really big questions. I think, you know, if we had this conversation in June twenty twenty two, we know where this conservative court is going to land on a lot of those issues. Is is the legitimacy of the court essentially lost? It, do you see anything that can be done here if there is no big reform? Which, again, I don't think is coming.
1: I think the court's at a very dangerous moment. I mean, I, I do think its legitimacy is in question right now. I mean, why do people listen to the Supreme Court? You know, they they feel it's legitimate. Uh, you know, because they feel it's, its decisions are objective. We know from looking at our history when that you know, at those moments where the court really breaks from the public um, or really seems out of sync with the elected branches, I mean, those are moments of crisis for the court. You can think, for example, of the court's confrontation with Franklin Roosevelt during the New Deal when it was systematically striking down New Deal legislation. You know, provoking FDR finally to you know threaten to pack the court in the famous uh, court packing crisis. You know there are there are other instances in in which uh, the court just seemed out of step with the public, and when that happens, you know the risk is that the court just won't be listened to, and that is a very dangerous position for the court to be in.
0: So. I've talked about that a little bit on this podcast and other places. What happens when we just stop giving them credence? And I mean, the answer, of course, is that they don't have an army to enforce their decisions. I mean, they live and die on the fact that we respect them and that we decide if they say this is a law, then okay, we have to adhere to that. Can you put into context for the listeners what does it mean if we just say, eh? I don't think the Supreme Court's legitimate anymore. Does that then mean that the rest of the judiciary also fails? What does a failed Supreme Court look like?
1: Well, I think a failed Supreme Court looks like a court that makes a decision that the elected branches are unwilling to listen to or enforce. I mean, you're right. The enforcement of the court's decisions in many cases rests upon the elected branches. I mean, you can think about... Um, school desegregation in the South being enforced by the U.S. Army, which was deployed by Dwight Eisenhower. Um, You can also think, if we go all the way back to Andrew Jackson, uh, when the court tried to do the right thing, you remember the court tried to protect the Cherokee um, from having their land taken from them Mm -hmm. by the state of Georgia, and the court effectively ruled in, in favor of the Cherokee, Uh, Jackson said John Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. That might be apocryphal, but that's what he was reported to say. And, you know, there's a series of maneuvers, but, you know, eventually the Cherokee were forced from their land. So the court remains a very weak institution. And to the extent that it's listened to, it's essentially because we've got these norms in which the elected branches go along with it. I mean, just imagine that the Bush v. Gore decision is is replayed today. You know, imagine yeah. there's a, a contested election between Joe Biden and Donald Trump and the court has to step in to, to try and resolve it. Is that going to be listened to in the same way it was then? Um, I have real doubts that it would be.
0: I think one of the really interesting things to come out of the 2020 election is that the judiciary, in my mind, really did hold because the post-election lawsuits were so absurd, my opinion, and really almost across the board so frivolous that it was easy for conservative judges and liberal judges to say, no, 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 we're not buying this. But of course, next time The arguments might be less frivolous, and they might be less absurd, and that's, I think, what we need to all be on guard for. And that probably segues us really nicely into our next topic, which is another poll um, about democracy being under threat. And some of the findings just shocked me. Now, eighty-five percent of Americans according to the poll, believe that it's very important for the United States to remain a democracy. That didn't shock me, although I'd like to talk to the other 15% at some point. Um, 52% believe American democracy is facing, quote, a major threat. But what really surprised me is who thought that there was a major threat and who didn't? Could you focus us on that for a moment?
1: Sure. Um what we found is that over 70% of Republicans believe that American democracy is facing a major threat. Um, the comparable number for Democrats is under 40%. Um, so, this perception um, that there's a major threat facing the United States is really coming from Republicans. Um, and I think that's somewhat surprising because the discussion you hear about this or you read about it in the media right now tends to be. Um, Democrats or or liberals really fretting about things like um, changes that Republicans are making to election laws or, or wondering what will happen in 2024 if we have another contested election. But I think what's going out in the public or going on in the public is that Republicans are hearing the same message over and over again. 2020 was stolen. The voting laws aren't fair. And in fact, when we asked our respondents, do you think your vote is likely to be counted accurately in 2022, only 38% of Republicans say yes. They are convinced that the election uh, in 2020 was stolen and that future elections may be as well. And I really think this is driving a perception among them that there's a major threat to American democracy.
0: That makes complete sense as to why Republicans think there's a major threat. Do you have a sense of why, comparatively, so few Democrats think that? I mean, we're at about a third of Democrats who say um, that democracy is facing a major threat. I, again, I'd like a word with the other two-thirds.
1: You know, I can speculate on this. Our, our data here uh, is only going to give us a rough guide about what to go by. But I would guess that, you know, these stories about changes to state election laws that are really getting Democratic commentators worked up are not really being closely followed by Democratic voters. You know, the changes to the law, they are technical sounding. They're hard to follow. There's a lot of different states in action. Um, Meanwhile, there's a Democratic president, and I think um, Democratic voters Um, feel protected by that. And in fact, um, if you look at our polling, confidence among Democrats that their vote will be counted accurately is at the highest we've ever measured it. It's at 84%. So even as these changes are going on at the state level, that Democratic policymakers worry are going to make it harder for them to make elections. That's not what Democratic voters are feeling. Democratic voters are confident.
0: Well, confidence can turn to complacency very quickly. So it'll be interesting to see what happens when I think we all start looking at these polls leading into the midterms even more. And I hope that we'll talk about that again in the future. But for now, I want to end on another poll that I just thought was so fascinating that deals with individual liberty. And you conducted a recent poll about what Americans should feel absolutely free to do. And you found that Democrats and Republicans, and this is not, of course, surprising, uh, value very different forms of liberty. I know that there's a lot here, but what are the themes that you noticed in this poll?
1: Yeah, I am, I'm absolutely fascinated by this topic. So I'll, I'll just say the reason we're looking at this is because the mandate of the Grinnell College National Poll is to assess the health of American democracy, by looking at attitudes about political institutions, attitudes about liberty, and attitudes about equality. So what we're trying to do here is understand how Americans think about liberty. And as a professor um, and someone who studies constitutional law, you know, I might start by thinking about John Stuart Mill's arguments about liberty. You know, Mill has his famous harm principle, which says that we should be free to act unless we harm someone else. You know, from a constitutional standpoint, the Supreme Court has been engaged in inquiry about what fundamental liberties are as it interprets the 14th Amendment and its rulings are designed to protect those liberties for all Americans. But when it comes to that in the mass public, that's not the way people think about it at all. Democrats and Republicans instead have these different bundles of attitudes that are packaged together. There's no underlying theme to what's in these bundles. They're just part of a partisan package. So, for example, when we ran a list of different types of actions past our respondents, Republicans told us that they believed that they should be absolutely free to refuse to take a vaccine required by the government, that they should be absolutely free to openly carry a gun wherever and whenever they want. That they should be free to punish their children in the way they think best. That they should be exempt from rules and regulations that conflict with sincerely held religious beliefs. Now, it's hard to find a philosophical link, right, to those different issues. But there's a partisan link, right? That's a package that goes together um, with with uh, what we're hearing from the Republican Party right now. By contrast. Over half of Democrats told us that people should be absolutely free to get an abortion during the first 15 weeks of pregnancy, uh, to use marijuana recreationally, whether it's legal or not, and to join a public protest that blocks city streets. So that to me was fascinating. What it says to me is that we speak a shared language. We all profess our adherence to liberty. We want the United States to uphold liberty but we have a very different meaning. We mean different forms of liberty when we use that word.
0: That is absolutely fascinating. And I'm wondering how we can turn that into having more productive conversations. I mean, you said something that I'm paraphrasing, but that we are using the same language. Maybe it means different things. But, and I also noted that you talked about the difference between philosophy versus partisanship. And that it's hard to kind of find a through line maybe between these views on individual liberty. Is there some takeaway for us as to you know, what we could do to have more productive conversations, how we can get out of screaming matches, how we can frankly go back to a place where we're arguing about what's the best way to reform the tax code, not whether or not our democracy is under siege and we had an attempted coup.
1: So Jessica, that's a really interesting question. And and I want to try to separate this discussion about how we work through different understandings of liberty from this really sort of larger systemic challenge to the United States, you know, this worry that democracy is under threat. You know, it's no surprise that Americans have different and strongly held views on questions like this. I mean, Of course, the purpose of political parties is to organize and advocate for different conceptions of the public good. There is another issue here, though, that makes it really hard for us to get on the same page. And that is, you know, we trust different people. This was another finding that came out of our poll. You know, who do we turn to to try and reach a common understanding about how we approach difficult public policy issues? And here what we found is that Republicans and Democrats really turned to different people. Republicans were much more likely to turn to traditional authority figures, religious leaders. Uh, They trusted police officers a lot. They trusted business leaders. Uh, Democrats relied more on experts, people like scientists, doctors, and teachers. Um, So I feel a little bit here like I'm not answering this question about how we get on the same page because I'm grappling with it myself. How do we do that? How do we do that when we're not even turning to common sources of expertise and information? Um, And I I think one of the lessons to take from this poll is, is, you know, some continued thinking about just how to proceed in this kind of environment.
0: You know, sometimes the answer is more questions. And sometimes the answer is just pointing out where the road forks. And I think it's really important that you did that. And it's really important even to think about where we get our sources of information and how that can change Our view of what's right and what's wrong. And I mean, we've seen it so starkly throughout the pandemic, you know, masks, no masks, vaccines, no vaccines, everything is seen through different lens. And part of trying to unpack that and solve that is clearly showing again where the road forks and why. And I think that your poll does that. And I think that you helped us think through a lot of that. So Dr. Peter Hansen, an associate professor of political science and a specialist in American politics at Grinnell College and the director of the Grinnell College National Poll. Thank you for passing judgment with us.
1: It was great to be here. I really enjoyed this conversation.
0: Thank you to our listeners for your support, for coming along for the ride of having these conversations with us. I loved this conversation with Dr. Hansen. We're going to have more of these coming up, and we wish everybody a great day.